Welcome to the I'm Still Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Whitlow. I've been reading and studying the Bible my entire life, but I still have a lot of questions, and I'm still learning what it means. Each episode, we will take a look at what the Bible has to say and what it means to us today. This week, in Episode 2 of the I'm Still Learning Podcast, we begin our new series called An Ordered Life. Today's teaching is called Begin and End with God. As we begin this dive into the study of the Ten Commandments, we see that this first commandment does not waste any time. It gets right to the point, and it leaves no room for negotiation. Exodus, the 20th chapter, and the third verse tells us, You must not have any other God but me. Now, this kind of absolute statement really goes against the grain of our 21st century sensibilities. We have been conditioned to have our own truth, where we will hold to ideas that seem reasonable to us and reject those ideas that might not sound like something we really want to subscribe to. But you know what? God doesn't see it that way, and He is unambiguous about it. However, even though this command is unambiguous, we will benefit greatly by giving a closer look at what is meant by it. First, it assumes the reality of God. The chapter begins with the statement, I am the Lord your God. Nowhere does the Bible make a case for the existence of God. It is very comfortable with the assumption that God has always existed and that He always will exist. Now, the first verse of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, it states, In the beginning, God. There's no description of how God came to be because He always was, He always is, and He always will be. The assumption of the existence of God is commonly and continually denied or debated by those who profess no belief in God. But even though people debate God's existence, the Bible itself does not engage in any such debate. As a matter of fact, faith that God exists is the entry point of any relationship with God. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 tells us, And it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to Him must believe that God exists and that He rewards those who sincerely seek Him. Now, it is impossible to please God without faith because it is impossible to prove the existence of God through reason or intellect. But this doesn't mean that you have to just check your brain at the door to believe in God, because there is evidence of His existence everywhere you look. As we have explored outer space, and our space probes go farther and farther into the void, we see that the universe is much larger and more complex than anything we ever imagined. We trace the orbits of the planets and stars and we find that their paths and trajectories can be precisely determined. We can predict the timing of sunrise and sunset for years in advance because the rotation of the earth is so dependable. As our microscopes have become more powerful, 
We have found that even the tiniest cell is infinitely complex. We can identify a person through their unique DNA, even from a single hair or maybe a toothpick that was held in the mouth can determine a person's DNA. And no fingerprint or snowflake is ever duplicated. So the wonders of science and the intelligence of humankind that draws us into these inquiries of our environment must be part of some sort of larger master plan. Anything that is as complex and ordered as this world that we live in causes us to look for a creator. Because even if we concede that many life forms can change and evolve over the centuries, it still begs the question, where did it all begin? Where did the first stuff come from? The world that we live in is, is evidence that it was created by some entity for some purpose. Evidence by itself is not proof, but it points to a conclusion. And just because evidence is not proof, that doesn't mean that evidence is not important. Today, we hear people making all kinds of preposterous claims that have no evidence to back them up. Now, just stating your case or declaring it to be your truth with no evidence, just because that is the way you want things to be, does not make it true. Here's what I mean. If you visit my house, you're going to see pictures of my children and my grandsons. They are not proof that I indeed have children and grandkids. I could be displaying pictures of people who are not related to me at all, but they are evidence. They might cause you to conclude that they are my family, or I might tell you they are my family. Additionally, you might see toys on the floor. These toys can be construed as evidence that my grandsons were in my house recently. They're not proof, but you could draw a conclusion based on that evidence. Of course, if you saw the toys on the floor, you could also draw the conclusion that I was playing with the toys. So if I tell you that I have grandsons who have been to my house earlier in the day, and you see evidence to support that statement, it is easier for you to conclude that I am telling you the truth than if I told you I have grandsons, but you never saw a toy, and, you, and I never gave you a name of one of them or showed you a picture as evidence. Actually, seeing my grandsons enter the room, seeing them give me a hug and hearing them say, Hi, Grandpa, to me, would be proof, but just seeing the evidence would likely be enough for you to conclude that I do indeed have grandsons. So the evidence of God through the study of science, the observation of nature, and the investigation of the human mind are interesting and important fields of study to determine evidence of God's existence. But by themselves, they are incomplete. They may cause you to believe in intelligent design, but intelligent design is not necessarily belief in God. But for those who are believers, they have something to offer that is far better than evidence. They have God Himself. They can testify of a personal connection. For the believer, there is a relationship with God. They know the intelligent designer. For the believer, that relationship is proof. Now, our concept of God has changed over time. 
but God has not changed at all. To those folks of the Old Testament time, or those who lived before Jesus came on the scene, God was a powerful force who spoke in spectacular ways to individuals who then relayed God's words to ordinary folks. The universe would have been a much smaller and more intimate place. The moon, the stars, and the planets would have seemed like dependable old friends after many years of watching them night after night as they progressed in their annual orbits through the sky. In the eighth psalm, David reflects on many nights spent watching them, and he writes, When I look at the night sky and I see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? It was a big God concept. There was no Jesus yet and no personal relationship. It was God over us. But then Jesus came and our relationship to God became more personalized. For the time that Jesus was on earth, he was God with skin on him. Jesus made claims that seemed preposterous. Claiming to be the Son of God, he even told his disciple Philip, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. He invited each of us into a personal, intimate relationship with God through a relationship with Him. He was willing to relate to anyone who would relate to Him. He was God for us. After His crucifixion and resurrection, He promised that He would not leave us alone, and He gave us the gift of His Holy Spirit that lives within every believer. This Holy Spirit is like the earnest money that someone who is buying a house will put on deposit to guarantee to the seller that they will show up to the closing and complete the deal. God is saying that through His Spirit living in us, He stays with us to lead, guide, and protect us until we are reunited with Him in eternity. He is God with us. Now, just because this offer has been made available to all, it doesn't establish the relationship. Any of you who are familiar with agreements know that an offer is only half the deal. There has to be acceptance of the offer. I can offer to sell you my car for a million dollars, but my offer in no way obligates you to give me a million dollars unless you agree that a million dollars is a fair price and agree to buy it. So God has made the offer of salvation meaning forgiveness of sin and the presence of His Holy Spirit dwelling in us to guide and protect us as we go, in exchange for making Him the only God in our life. Remember the commandment, you must not have any other God but me. So our lesser gods have to go. We don't add God to our self-help disciplines. He is either Lord of all or He isn't Lord at all. I think we've been a little bit disingenuous when talking about salvation as being free. It is free in the sense that there is nothing that we can do to earn the offer of salvation. Christ's death on the cross paid the ultimate price for all of our sin. You can't be good enough, generous enough, or disciplined enough to be worthy of Jesus Christ paying the penalty for the wrongs that you have done. So in that aspect, Salvation is indeed free. But there is a precondition that must be met. When you receive that salvation, 
you must be willing to let go of every other God and spend the rest of your life obeying God. You must not have any other God but me. And we have so many gods. And there are so many people who are not willing to give up their other gods. Many folks fill their lives with so much activity that they stay preoccupied and don't give themselves time to think about God. I wonder if they suspect that if they slowed down, God would point out to them things that would need to change if they're going to have a full relationship with Him. I think that He will. But they fail to realize that by giving up those lesser gods, their lives will improve. They miss this first commandment by misunderstanding God's power and His greatness. Others dismiss God by imagining Him to be someone He is not. They may see God as someone who is harsh, angry, and impossible to please. Or at the other end of the spectrum, they see Him as a benevolent master who really isn't all that worried about their quirks and just wants them to do what they want to do with no judgment. They both miss the first commandment by misunderstanding God's holy nature. And third, there are those who try to deny God's existence. They think their little gods are all they need, whether their little god is their own intellect, a philosophy, or a political view, it is a little god when compared to God. Romans, the 14th chapter and the 11th verse, lets us know that there is a day of realization coming for all of us. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So here's our takeaway. If we will be willing to give up our lesser gods, we will find God and we will find that He is everything that we are looking for. Isn't it wonderful that as we have looked into, if we, we looked deeper into this first commandment, we found that it isn't a forbidding law. It's not a threat that we better get rid of our other gods. Rather, it is a gracious invitation to an ordered life. If we will just be willing to give up our little gods, our big, wonderful God will be all that we could ever want. Thank you for listening to the I'm Still Learning podcast. Next week's teaching will be on the second commandment, and it's called No Substitutes. See you next week.